today, today I want to talk to you about saving faith, okay? Saving faith. And I want to say to you that saving faith is always, 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 always a response to reckless grace. Faith is always a response to God's grace. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. must be important. The Bible also says that Abraham was made righteous. He was made in a right standing with God because of his faith. Faith is a big deal in this book. Faith is talked a lot about in this book. And so I want to unpack this. And today, I want to win you over to the idea that saving faith is always a response to God's grace. And to do that, I want to look into an encounter that someone had with Jesus that shows us this kind of grace and this kind of faith. Uh, But in order to do that, I want to remind you of the world that you and I live in. See, you, like me, we're all conditioned to see life as conditional. How do you get A's in school? Do teachers just give out A's? You're right, they do. And when you're in that class that Mr. Smith gave everyone an A in, is your A as shiny as those other A's? No, it's diminished because everybody got an A. If, in most colleges, when you go to Princeton, right, in order to get an A, you got to work hard, you got to produce, you got to make the professor happy, how, whatever that takes to get that magic A. I mean, and so there's, it's conditional. They don't just give out A's to everybody. You and I are told, right, that love is a two-way street, not a one-way street. It takes two people to make love work. It's back and forth. It's give and take. You can't just love somebody unconditionally or treat them kindly, and they're not going to treat you back kindly. When that happens, we send you out to see a counselor because we tell you that's not healthy, right? It's conditional. I mean, am am I making this stuff up? This is the world that you and I are brought up in. In Christian churches, over the past many decades, we've brought this conditional way of living, and we've embraced it, and we've walked it out in our churches. I grew up Baptist, and I'm going to talk about the Baptist for a moment. If you're a Baptist, I apologize, but, you know, maybe we could go out for pie after church tonight. (laughs) Okay? I, I like pie, too, man. That's what Baptists did. Every Sunday night, we went and had pie after church, okay? In, in Baptist churches, like the ones I grew up in, uh, my mom's not here, so I can say this. Mom loved to wear pants in the 70s. And the Baptist church that we attended in the 1970s said that if you're a woman and you love Jesus, you don't wear pants. You wear a skirt. Guess how many times mom went to church? <laughs> Not very many during that period. And there's, you know, back and forth with the preacher. Okay, and he'd quote the Bible. All right? Uh, The other thing, my mom just recently told me about a friend of hers in another state. This woman had gone to a Baptist church. She had been there. She had been there several months. And several different people pulled her aside and talked to her about the fact that, well, you know, you're divorced. And you know that, you know, that's that's not God's will. And she kind of... She gave up, and she walked away from church because she was like, I know it was wrong. I didn't sign. It's not like when I got married, it was a big part of my plan that, you know, I'm just going to wreck my marriage and finances all at once. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. No, it wasn't her plan. Okay? In her mind, it just kind of happened, but she knows. And so, boom, there it was, conditionality playing out in the, in the life of church. Um, 
people have pulled me aside from time to time. Back in the mothership, when there would be issues, uh, we had a gay couple that wanted to come. And the issue was, would we let a gay couple attend church? You know, and I, in my mind, I'm like, really? Is that such a big deal? I mean, what's the problem with that? But again, there's this conditionality. See, in Christianity, for a good part of American experience over the last few decades, it's been the case that what we practice doesn't me- measure up with what we say about God's grace, right? We say God's grace is unmerited, that God front loads relationships with acceptance. And we preach about this Jesus. And yet when we're interfacing with people in the church, we want them to straighten up and fly right before they fly with us. And it doesn't measure up. But Jesus shows us a different way, a better way, in Luke chapter 7. And that's where we're going to be today. Is it any... I, I think... Here's the connection in my mind. I think one of the reasons that the church in America isn't seeing the kind of salvations, and we're not growing by salvation growth, is because we have not, we failed to recognize the connection between saving faith and reckless grace. That faith is always a response to God's grace. Look with me to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start at the end of this story, Luke chapter 7. Uh, verse 50. There's this interchange that happens. Jesus has gone to a dinner party. Uh, A guest shows up that is not exactly one of the most outstanding people in town. She does some things that are a little bit risque. There's an interchange about it. And Jesus says of this person at the very end in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He's talking about saving faith. So let's go back and let's look at this interchange, all right? And it starts off in verse 36. Luke 7, uh, verse 36 to 38. That's where we'll start out. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So when Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat... When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. So Jesus gets invited to go uh, have dinner with one of the Pharisees, one of the God squad. If you know anything about the New Testament Uh, culture of the time, the Pharisees were kind of like the evangelical Christians of their day, in a sense. They They had a reputation for believing the right things and practicing the right things. They were in with God. That was the Pharisees of the first century. And so, uh, when Jesus came on the scene, he kept doing these things that they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Good, God-fearing, God-following, God-honoring people don't do those kinds of things, Rabbi. And so, Who knows why he got invited? Maybe he got invited because the Pharisee was wanting to know more. Maybe he got invited because the Pharisee was hoping to teach the rabbi a few lessons. I don't know. But he gets, he goes there. And the way these dinners would have worked is that um, uh, the the host and the guests would have reclined at table. And I've talked about what that means. If this is new to you, reclining at table is when you kind of are on the floor and you're leaning in and you're eating around a table. And your feet are sticking out. So, you know, if this is my head, I'm leaning, the table's over here, and my feet are kind of outward like spokes on a wheel around the table. Interestingly, and I find this weird, but this is how they did it, uh, 
you, uh, the door to the home would be open during a meal like that when you had a prominent rabbi so that your neighbors and friends and people from the community could come in and sit along the walls and just listen in on the discussion and the conversation. Isn't that weird? Isn't that awesome? Okay, so they're having a meal. You're not obligated to feed them or have show, you know, give them any food, but they can hang out along the periphery. And one of the people that chose to do this is what the text says is a certain immoral woman. I'm going to guess she was probably a prostitute. We don't know. But usually when that word is used, it has something to do with some kind of sexual misconduct. All right? So she shows up. The, the rule that she breaks is that she doesn't stay on the sidelines. Notice what she does. She comes and she cries and weeps at his feet. She's touching his feet. She you know, uses her hair. She has perfume, okay? Uh, and verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him, invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is touching him. She's a sinner. <gasps> she didn't stay along the wall. She took a risk, and she's touching this rabbi's feet. She's, she's not observing the boundaries that she should have observed, and everybody knows who she is and what she does and what she's done, and they've made conclusions about her. And Jesus, being a prophet says this in verse 40, Simon, that's the Pharisee who invited him to dinner, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. In my life, when Jesus says he has something to say to me, I always know I have learning to do. <laughs> so I'm never, I'm never always eager to go, go ahead, Jesus. Go ahead, teacher. But, but Simon, not knowing probably what's coming, go ahead, teacher. Teach. So Jesus told him this story, verse 40, 41. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Bing, that's right. Here's what's playing out. In Simon's mind, I'm a Pharisee. I follow the commandments. I go to the temple and worship. I give generously. I honor God with my choices. I honor my parents. I know the Torah and God's law. I have it hidden in here and in here. When it comes to sin, I'm a little sinner. Little sinners, right? according to Jesus, then, don't have much reason to be very, very grateful. Let, let's let Jesus unpack this for a moment. Verses uh, uh, 44 and following. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. 
But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's this pathway that's unfolding in this interchange between the woman and the rabbi. Grace is being extended to her. God's reckless grace, accepting her for who she is and where she is and not judging her necessarily for all the things that she's done, that front-loaded acceptance that we've talked about at generations before. And in the face of that, this woman has faith, and she's putting her faith in Jesus. And as a result of it, her response is love. So there you have grace, faith, love. Grace, faith, love. In the face of reckless grace, when somebody gives me what I don't deserve, I respond to that. Don't you respond to that? When you're given something you don't deserve, in a, I'm talking about the good stuff, not the bad stuff. The good stuff. Okay? Um, the Pharisee gets it, but not quite. Um, and so there's three aspects of faith that I want to, and for those of you that are like uber theological, you're going to go, ooh! Okay? So <laughs> calm down. Calm down. But for the rest of us that aren't just, you know, we don't read theology, we're not pulling Luther off the shelf, okay? I want to I unpack saving faith for a little bit. The church fathers and Luther and all these people talk about three aspects of faith. There's three aspects of faith that played out in this woman where Jesus said, you've got, your, your faith has saved you. And this first aspect is a mental, okay? It's, it's mental. It has to do with a recognition of the truth claims of the gospel. You've probably heard some basic truth claim, claims growing up in America. There's a real God. God's real. There's sin. That's a problem. God sent his son, and his son is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sin. You've probably heard some version of that. And so the first part of faith is just mental recognition. Yeah, I've heard that. I understand that. I get it. Okay. The second aspect of faith is an acknowledgement of the truthfulness of those claims. This is where it gets personal. This involves the heart. This is when somebody says, yeah, 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 God's real, and oh my goodness, that has an impact on my life. I can't just do anything I want to do. I mean, I've got to somehow interface with God. And then I've got this problem. I'm a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. And all of a sudden, see, this category, this information becomes something that's personal, and the heart gets involved. That's the second aspect of saving faith, is the involvement of your heart in the matter. And the third and final thing is what theologians will call volitional, or the will. In other words, I get to a point where I've heard the gospel story, I feel it in here, and I know, man, I need God, and I need God's forgiveness, and I need God's grace and I get to a point and I make a decision that I'm going to surrender to him and to that grace. And I'm going to receive what God has for me. And those are three, the three aspects of saving faith. I think that as we Christians, when we live the way Jesus lived and when we extend grace the way he did, we're going to see saving faith come up. It's going to happen because the gospel has that power to it. And so in light of this woman 
in her interchange with Jesus in light of the fact that Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. And for those of you, again, who are tight, tight theologians, okay, did, is it her faith that really saved her? No, God saved her. Her faith was simply the vehicle, the me- mechanism, the, the connection for it, okay? So for those of you that are theological wired, okay, I'm okay, I'm safe, right? But, but here we go. In light of this, I want to ask some questions. In light of this text, in light of this woman, in light of the way the Pharisee treated her and made conclusions about her, in light of Jesus' response to her, let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself drawn to Jesus? Has there been part of you in your life where you've heard the basic parts of the Jesus story, and you, you know it up here, you've heard it, okay? There's a mental involvement. And maybe there's also been a heart component where at some point along the way, you've maybe even begrudgingly said, yeah, okay, yeah, I've messed up. The whole being back connected with God thing, yeah, I need help with that. I can't do that on my own. Uncle, you got me. Then I want to suggest to you that maybe if you haven't made a decision that it's time to make a decision. And and this is the way I like to talk about it generations. And, And you'll have heard a version of this at Easter. Uh, when I die, I'm going to face God. The same thing is true with you. I believe that. I believe God's real, and I believe that, you know, I wasn't designed to just be born and die. I believe I'm going to live forever. There's something immortal about being in the image of God, et cetera, et cetera. But, but when I die and I'm face-to-face with God, that scares me a little bit. I don't know about you, but when I think about it and what it really is, it scares me, but I'm confident. I'm confident of the outcome. I'm confident of what's going to happen, and here's why. I made a decision years ago, and this is what I decided. I decided that I could offer nothing to God. I recognized that Jesus lived the life I should have lived and that Jesus died the death that I deserved. And I put my confidence on Jesus. And so when I encounter God after I die, do you know what I plan to say? Whoa, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at my life. I am a sinner. I have not been the way I should with Jenny, with my children, with the people in my church, with life. I haven't always been honest. I, have, I mean, I am, please don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And that's how I'm confident that I'm going to live forever with God because of what Jesus has done. My faith is in Jesus and what he's done. And so that's perhaps a decision point for you. Now, for those of you that are long-standing believers or Christians, I want to talk to you for a minute. Can we talk? Do you have a tendency to see sinners for who they have been or for what God can make of them? When you interface with people and and that person outside the realm of faith who's just a harlot or a cheat or whatever, do you have a tendency to simply see them as just that and only that? Or do you see the possibility of what God could do with that life with some reckless grace and saving faith? And, and here's the, the kicker. When you, are not, when you think of your own flaws or the habits that you've had a hard time breaking, is that really how you want other people to define you? No. 
Okay? So here's another question uh, for believers. And the question is this. Has your love for God grown cold? And this is a harder question, but it happens, doesn't it? I mean, if you were honest with yourself, would you say, you know, okay, when it comes to God, I've been a bit ambivalent lately. You know, life's busy and I got all this stuff going on and, you know, yeah, God's real and... Has your love for God grown cold? If that's the case, um, uh, I, I wonder, could it be that it's because you feel God owes you? See, you and I live in this society where, you know, that's just part of the way it works. And so it's easy to think that God should have done this or God should have provided that or, or God wasn't for me, didn't open that job, that relationship didn't plan out the way it, it, it pan out the way I thought or I wanted or I hoped. And so we have all these wants and hopes and dreams and we kind of weave that into God. And so do you feel that God owes you? When I'm honest about myself and my life, God doesn't owe me anything based on what I read in this book and based on what I know about him because I'm a sinner. (laughs) I am. I admit it in the gym today. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And so when you and I have the mindset that Simon did in this passage and we see ourselves as little sinners, it's very easy for our love for God to grow cold. And so here's some homework I might give those of you that are Christians, all right? If you're a believer, here's some homework. I want you to think of a person in your life who's outside the faith. There's a good chance you work with some people like that. They're on your kid's soccer team. You know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Someone maybe you've judged or someone whose past defines them in your eyes. I want you to consider this morning starting to pray for that person. And I want you to consider extending them grace. Don't be afraid to let, don't be afraid that they're going to contaminate you. Look at it the other way around. You contaminate them with reckless grace. You wreck their lives with what God's doing because of what you're doing, how you're interfacing with them, the grace you're extending them, um, and the love that you're showing them. I think it's time we wreck some lives with God's amazing grace because it does. It wrecks people, it messes them up, but it produces saving faith, which then leads to a life of love and fruit. That's good news. How does this work? I'll end with this story. Rod, uh, what's his, I can never pronounce his last name. Rod Rosenblatt. Ron Rosenblatt is a pastor up north in the frozen tundra of Minnesota. Gotta love it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Gonna go ice skiing this weekend. Yeah. Or ice fishing. I don't know, ice skiing. What's that all about? Okay, so, (laughs) I don't, I don't live in Minnesota. (laughs) So, Rod, Rod had a woman in his congregation come to him, and this was her thing. I, Pastor, I need some help. Pastor Rod, I need some help. Long, she's a middle-aged woman, okay? So upper 30s, uh, upper 30s, lower 40s, however you want to define middle age, okay? I'm 43, and I embrace it. <laughs> okay? Woo! Maybe we need to talk about mortality one Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so middle-aged woman, she comes to Pastor Rod, and she says, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. When I was, when I was really young, I had an abortion. 
and I'm not proud of it, and I, I, I just, it messed me up for so many years. But see, I met this guy, and I thought that while we were kind of courting and dating and getting to know each other, I just, I thought, I thought I would tell him. And then we got engaged, and I thought, I just, I need to come clean, and I need to tell him this thing about my life, about my past. And, and now we're married, and we've been married a year and a half, and I just have this fear that if he finds out that when I finally fess up, that he's not going to love me, that he's going to want to bail, he's going to want to run. Because, you know, he grew up in a Christian home, and, he, and he's, he's so adamant about a lot of things, and I need your help. And so, you know what Pastor Rod did? He walked her through a basic thing of forgiveness. And they prayed about it, and they prayed to God. And he, uh, in a very Lutheran way, because there's a lot of Lutherans up there in Minnesota, said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And she found that very, very helpful. And, and as she's getting ready to leave, she says to him, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, feel like, I feel like I can talk to him about this abortion. And you know what he said to her? What abortion? There is the grace of God. And don't you forget it. 